Brethren, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn to 2 Chronicles and chapter 36. 2 Chronicles 36. And before we come to the Scripture to read it and study, let's turn to our God in prayer once more. Heavenly Father, as we approach You tonight, we aim to be servants sitting underneath You, ready to hear what You would have for us. And we pray that Your Word would make wise the simple and rejoice our hearts. Use this very text to show us Your faithfulness, that steadfast love which meets us every morning, and how we all need and depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you will follow along with me as I read God's Word, Second Chronicles 36, we'll read the whole chapter. The people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoahaz his brother and carried him to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord, and made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that He had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people, until there was no remedy. Therefore He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into His hand. 
and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate. It kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Well, thus far, God's holy word, and may he bless it tonight to our hearing. Well, let me congratulate you all tonight as we start. You have done something few congregations have ever done. Listen to preaching all the way through First and Second Chronicles. These are some of the most neglected books of the Bible. Yet I trust they have still been used by the Lord to show you His grace and His glory. Well, tonight as we come to an end, we move from the last high point in Judah's history, Josiah's great reform and his godliness, to the rapid decline and deportation of the depraved in Jerusalem. It is a very depressing end. And while we see sin in spades in this chapter, which covers about 80 years of biblical history, we're chiefly seeing the rule of God's Word. The failure to heed His Word leads to His fateful covenant curses falling on Judah. Yet even when sin abounds, the grace of God declared in the Word still shines. For the God that justly struck His people will also intervene for His people according to His Word. Well, as we make our way through the text, we're going to see four things together. And first we'll see calamity multiplies in verses 1-14. to Calamity multiplies. Now we could say calamity started when Josiah didn't listen to God's word through Pharaoh Necho and rushed into disaster. You remember he was killed by a bowshot. And now we see the reform Josiah sought to bring was never rooted in the hearts of his sons or in the people. After Josiah dies, the people of the land, verse 1, take Josiah's son, Jehoaz, and make him king. You may wonder, why him? Well, it's not because he was the oldest. If you do the math, Eliakim, his brother, was at least two years older. Further, it wasn't because Jehoahaz was godly, like Josiah. Kings tells us that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He blew off his daddy's reforms and ramrodded the nation right back in the, into the perversity of the past. Maybe his religious tolerance attracted the people of the land who wanted their unbiblical traditions to be practiced. 
But most likely, they probably put him on the throne because of a pro, uh, an anti, I should say, an anti-Assyrian and an anti-Egypt stance. We get no details about his hostility to Egypt, but we know Pharaoh didn't want to fight Josiah, and Josiah was killed on the plains of Megiddo, but now Pharaoh invades Jerusalem three months later, which suggests Jehoahaz was hostile to Pharaoh. Jehoahaz reigns a mere three months. Then he's deposed and dragged off to Egypt. It's an exile in miniature, as happened to Manasseh. Only here, there's no humbling of himself before Yahweh. But the calamity of losing a king is only the beginning. Pharaoh exacts a tribute of silver and gold from Jerusalem, and he determines a new king. He takes Eliakim and puts him on the throne and changes his name to Jehoiakim. Now, what's the significance of the changing of the name? Well, it really doesn't mean much difference. Uh, Eliakim means God will establish. Jehoiakim means Yahweh will establish. But it's simply that Pharaoh gave him the name, which is Pharaoh's way of saying, I own you. You are my puppet. You will do my bidding. And you will stand for me against the rising power, no doubt, of Babylon. Well, at this point, we're seeing the horrific consequences of rebelling against the Lord. What did Yahweh say would happen if His people abandoned His Word and walked contrary to Him? Leviticus 26.17, God said, those who hate you shall rule over you. And that is exactly what's happening. Well, did God's judgment get Jehoiakim's attention? Not at all. During his 11-year reign from 609 roughly B.C. to 598, he, verse 5, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He rejected God's covenant and he abused the people. Kings tells us that he paid the tribute to Pharaoh by oppressing the people with severe taxes. Jeremiah further tells us Jehoiakim rejected his father's care of the poor and he afflicted them with mistreatment and violence and slaughter. He forced people to labor to build his posh dwellings and he didn't pay them anything. Further, he seemed to delight in the power of Egypt to the south to be his protector and never turned to Yahweh. But quickly the Lord strikes down that idol of Egypt. In 605 B.C., Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar pummels Egypt and promptly attacks Jerusalem, verse 6. And then Jehoiakim is bound with chains and is briefly carted off to Babylon. And I say briefly because he reigns another seven years. So at some point he was brought back to the throne. But this invasion and the deportation furthers the calamity against Judah. 605 marks the first time Babylon seized the sons of Judah and carried them away. This is when Daniel and his three friends are captured. The temple is looted. The treasures of the temple are laid in Babylonian palaces as if to say, Yahweh is the loser. He can't do anything before Babylon's gods. And of course, we know the real issue is not that our covenant God is weak. No, He's doing, as He once did with Philista attacking His people, allowing the Philistines to capture the ark. He's showing His people they can't think 
they can despise the Lord and carry on in sin. The Lord will humiliate Himself to chastise His people. Because what's the consequence of breaking the covenant? Deuteronomy 28, verse 41. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Just try to imagine the heartbreak of having your 10 to 14 year old children ripped away from you, never to see them again. Why is it happening? Because of their sin. And once more, the Lord is doing exactly what He said He would do. Indeed, Judah and Jerusalem now become a a ping-pong ball of pagan power. Egypt dominated them in 609. Babylon dominates them in 605. They have no stability. And then it gets worse because they don't repent. Jehoiakim's reign is followed by Jehoiachin. And this 18-year-old in verse 9 reigns for a mere three months and ten days. And then Nebuchadnezzar decides to seize him. Why does that happen? Because he keeps doing evil in the eyes of God, verse 9. You see, Jeremiah, in his prophecy, he had called the nation to repent. He had called Jehoiachin's father, Jehoiakim, to hear the word of God. He sent a scroll that was written down of God's word saying, these are the curses that will come upon you if you reject God, but see his heart towards you to receive you if you repent. Jehoiakim heard the message read, took out his knife and cut it off sheet by sheet and threw it in the fire. And that's exactly the attitude his son will have. He treats God's Word as if it's equivalent to garbage. And Nebuchadnezzar again deports people in 598 or so, 597. This is when Ezekiel is deported to Babylon. The temple is plundered again, and it fulfills God's Word. God told them, Deuteronomy 28.36, if you will not obey... The Lord will bring you and your king to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. What is God doing? Exactly what He said. Now we haven't yet reached exile in full scale, but do you see what's happening? Judah is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And as Pharaoh had done, Nebuchadnezzar sets up another puppet king. He takes a man who's known in Chronicles as Zedekiah. His name was actually Mataniah in Kings, we're told. But he's renamed. And and the renaming, again, is not about the focus of the name. Yah, at the end, is the name for Yahweh. It's simply for (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar saying, I own you. You will do what I say. Eleven years, Zedekiah is on the throne. And in view of the unmitigated disaster of the previous 11 plus years, the deaths or deportations of four kings, multiple invasions, massive plundering, one might think Zedekiah would see, oh, something is terribly wrong in Judah, and then repent. We have sinned. Lord, have mercy on us. But he doesn't do that at all. He just carries on his patterns of evil. Jeremiah brings multiple messages against him. You can read about it in Jeremiah 24 to 38. But even then, even when hope is set before Zedekiah, the hope being, if you will simply bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, recognizing that he's going to rule over you, you will live. But he won't listen. He asks for prayer from Jeremiah, and then doesn't do anything he says. He never humbles himself to receive the word. And in a moment of astounding stupidity, 
He rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. He resists the pagan king thinking that he can outsmart him. At this time of great calamity, things are bad on a larger scale than just in the royal palace. The officials of Zedekiah's court, the priests, further the problem by lying to the people. And they continue to violate God's requirements. They were told in our text, polluted worship even more. Look at verse verse 14. We're told that the priests and the people were exceedingly unfaithful. How do you get more unfaithful than slaughtering your children in the fire to Molech and having cultic prostitution all through the land as you offer yourself up to fertility gods and putting idols in the temple? How do you get worse than that? I don't know, but they do. They were exceedingly unfaithful, exponentially wicked. And no one, not king, not priest, not prophet, no one among the people is crying out to Yahweh. No one's pursuing repentance. No one is trembling at the Word of God. They just had to sin, to sin, to sin. They pretend as though God doesn't even reign. And His Word means nothing. Therefore, they will face the trifecta that Jeremiah touted. Sword, pestilence, and famine. This is a really exciting portion of Scripture, isn't it? Dear friends, what are we to take away from all of this? We are to hear of the swift decline of God's people and see the danger of disobeying the Lord. We're to take heed to ourselves and recognize if we refuse to reform according to God's Word, if we go our own way and do not humble ourselves, the moral, social, and religious decline can be exponential in a matter of just over 20 years. That should resonate with you because you're looking across the landscape of our day and you're thinking about that rapid moral decline, social decline that we're seeing everywhere. But the principle is not for us to try to apply ancient Israel one-to-one with America. That's a bad hermeneutic. We should apply ancient Israel to the church to the professed people of God, but I think that actually aids us. What has been a root cause of the moral degradation of our society? It is the corrupt witness of those who profess to know God. They've abandoned the authority of God on large scale. A hundred years ago, this year, men who called themselves Presbyterian actually wrote down that they denied the Bible's inerrancy and authority. They denied the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They denied the validity of His substitutionary death. And they denied His resurrection. And this doctrinal decline is only intensified in all the mainline churches. On top of that, many who profess to know God have made worship a season of self-soothing entertainment of therapeutic comfort, with no repentance. They've claimed pursuing holiness is legalism. And they've given license to all kinds of sins and mercy for everybody. You've got license to offer the blood of your children to Molech. You've got a license to engage in male cult prostitution to Asherah. You've got a license to accommodate the latest worldly trend as though you're making offerings in the high places and blend it with the worship of God. 
what can this do but bring destruction? If God's Word doesn't rule our lives, if God's Word doesn't command our careful living, leading us to Christ and away from sin, God's Word will be like a hammer smashing the rock in pieces. But it's easy, isn't it, to look at the past and criticize, to look at the present and criticize everybody else. I want us to look at ourselves. Are we heeding God's Word? Are we bowing to its authority? All of it. Not some of it. All of it. Are we careful to follow Christ's commands? Lord, my Savior, teach me how to do what is pleasing in Your sight. Are we mindful of our sin and repenting of it particularly? Do we hate even the garment that is stained by the flesh? Are we keeping ourselves in the love of God? Brethren, if we don't do these things, calamity will meet us. What would that look like? It would look like Jesus removing our lampstand. That's a sober message as we're celebrating a, a 20th anniversary, isn't it? Uh, I've been reading a, a wonderful book by David Calhoun called Our Southern Zion, which is about the history of Columbia Theological Seminary. It's kind of the Southern Presbyterian Seminary. And there's, I discovered a, a church I didn't know about in the mid uh, 1700, 1734 in Liberty County, Georgia. Anybody know where that is? Um, little south and west of Savannah, there was a church called Midway Church. And it produced, in about a period of 30 years or so, 12 Presbyterian pastors and missionaries. That one little church. In the late 1800s, that church was a wasteland. There's a preservation society, you can go look at it. It hasn't been a church in 150 years. What happened? the decline of obedience to God. It can happen to us too if we don't pay careful attention to the Word. Let us take heed to ourselves. Then secondly, see with me, compassionate appeals. When moral degradation is multiplied as it is today, it's easy for many of us to say, we're under judgment. The signs are everywhere that we're rejecting the old past for some new morality. Well, likewise, depravity and destruction dotting the landscape in Judah, made it clear, the Lord is displeased. You can't see your kings hauled off in chains, your city sacked, your children stolen, your treasures ripped away from the temple, and think, everything is great in the land, isn't it? No, the Lord's wrath has been provoked. Yet, dear friends, I want you to see here the long-suffering of our God. Look at His compassion. While He brought nations against His people, what else did He do? Verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, that is not a superfluous addition, it's a reminder that God is a covenant-keeping God. He remembers His promise. He sent persistently to them by His messengers. The Hebrew has a little idiom that God sent men to rise early and often. And the sense is, again and again and again and again, He's sending the messengers. Why? Why would the Lord put up with this provocation, this rebellion to His rule? Why not just go dark? Not give them anything? Look at the reason, verse 15. Because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. The Lord isn't giving them what they deserve. In this moment, from Josiah's death in 609 B.C. to near the end of Zedekiah's reign, 6.
or sorry, 589. It's a two-year siege that Babylon will start. <clears throat> the Lord is calling His people persistently to turn to Him. What an incredible kindness this is. All Judah has done since Josiah died is to forsake the Lord. But God still calls them His people. And He still appeals to them. You and I would not put up with this. Not at all. If your children were rebellious against you and spitting your face for 20 years, you would not put up with it. You wouldn't take it. You would not extend offers of mercy. But Yahweh does. Even now, He tells His people who would trust in Him that they will be blessed, that they'll bear fruit, that they'll not be anxious in trouble. You can read about it in Jeremiah 17. Shouldn't we learn something here, brethren, of the patience of God, of His love for sinners? Our God longs to be gracious. Indeed, should we not recognize that our God hasn't changed? He's a God of compassion, slow to anger. He will welcome any penitent sinner who runs to Him. And doesn't He show us this truth in even greater ways when He sends not servant after servant after servant, but the servant, His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for our sins? Look at God's covenant love and His crucified Son. Look at His compassion that He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but He calls the wayward to leave your sin and to trust in Christ. Friend, if you're here tonight and you're running in a course of corruption, stop your evil and go to the God of compassion. Don't presume upon His mercy that the Lord is going to give you more time to figure it all out. No, listen now. Go to Jesus today and receive Him because today is the day of salvation. But what happens is God appeals and appeals and appeals and appeals. Verse 16, But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets. We can see this with Jeremiah specifically. In Jeremiah 11, the men of Anathoth sought to kill Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 20, Pasher the priest beat Jeremiah and put him in stocks. In Jeremiah 26, the priests and false prophets, along with many people, surrounded Jeremiah, shouting at him, You shall die. It's very similar to the scene when the leaders of Jerusalem and the people are crying out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And with Jeremiah, the Lord calmed the crowd. In Jeremiah 37, Jeremiah was imprisoned for speaking the truth. In Jeremiah 38, he's seized and thrown into a cistern and left for dead. He's rescued, thankfully. But this is the kind of treatment God is giving, sorry, the people are giving God's prophets. And what's the result? Well, this mocking, despising, and scoffing went on, verse 16, until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people, until there was no remedy. There was a time when the Lord said He would relent of coming disaster if they would turn. There was a time the Lord said if they submitted to Babylon, then they would be spared. The city wouldn't be burned. But they didn't listen. And now there's no remedy. Zedekiah, the last king, is a picture of this. Contrary to Jeremiah's warnings, he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> and when the siege begins, he tries to escape through a breach in the city wall at night, of course. Zedekiah is captured. All his sons are slaughtered in front of his eyes, and then his eyes are gouged out. He's put in chains, led away to Babylon, where he dies. 
If you despise the Word of God and resist His compassion, unspeakable consequences will come upon you. It will be as Proverbs 1 records. Again, not an encouraging text. Those who ignored God's counsel and would not have His reproof when judgment comes upon them, they will cry out and the Lord will not hear. It will be like King Saul who won't repent and he goes to the witch of Endor only to hear that he's a dead man. He will die in darkness. Yes, it's a discouraging message, brethren, but it has an obvious implication. Maybe it's the same application as the first point. Don't despise God's Word. Or see from Matthew Henry's language, nothing is more provoking to God than abuses to His faithful ministers. God is making His appeal through these men and to reject the mouthpiece of the Lord is to reject the Lord Himself. So let us be careful to take to heart His compassionate appeals which confront our sin. We don't like it when God's Word touches a nerve in our conscience and we squirm and we try to get away. But let us not run away from Him and mock Him. Rather, let us humble ourselves and go to God quickly. Remember how deceitful sin is. How it desires to overtake you with subtle but ever-expanding domination. Don't give ground to sin. Don't grieve the Spirit by refusing rebuke. Let us never presume upon God's compassion. Thirdly, see with me. Covenant curse. These verses record, starting in verse 17 to 21, the climactic moment when Babylon breaks through the walls and begins their acts of terror. They had no respect for the house of God. They slaughter people right there in the temple courts. No compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. Those who are in the city are presumed treasonous and ruthlessly killed. But lest anyone forget, into verse 18, He, as in Yahweh, gave them all into His, Nebuchadnezzar's, hand. This is covenant curse. It's happening exactly like God said. In Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah preached his famous temple sermon, which Jesus will quote, by the way. Jeremiah says these religious people are gathering in God's house, but it's like a den of robbers. That will be the line Jesus quotes. They claim the name of the Lord only to carry on in abominable sin. But Jeremiah says, look, you guys can go back to the sanctuaries at Shiloh in the days when Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, carried the ark around like a rabbit's foot and the Lord had them crushed and the sanctuary was destroyed. That's exactly what God's going to do here. Haven't you learned? But no, they haven't. Whatever was left in the house of God after repeated plundering is now taken. Likely the ark, the golden implements for worship, the bronze pillars. We're going to see about 80 years from now when Daniel's an old man, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson using the cups in the temple in an elaborate drinking party to his God. Everything's been plundered, and this is the moment. Verse 19, the temple's burned. The walls are broken down. The palace complex was set ablaze. And the land would be in exile and remain that way until Persia would rise. 
all told from the time Babylon starts deporting people around 605 down to the day when Persia will take over and establish a new principle, 539, 538, is about 70 years. Why that long? The chronicler gives an explanation. He says, verse 21, this was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now we probably remember the Sabbath concept was bigger than just a day. Every seven years they were supposed to let the land lie fallow and not reap or plant anything, or not further plant anything. And then the seven of seven years, 49 years, was to be the Jubilee, when they were to let servants go free and restore land holdings. But what's interesting is, it doesn't seem that they ever did any of that. In fact, in Jeremiah 34, King Zedekiah apparently was starting to practice the Jubilee, and then he and the officials decided, you know what, we really don't want to release the service after all. And they broke covenant. It's just one more illustration of their blatant disregard for God's Word. They didn't trust God to provide for them. So they did it their way. Their way in their worship, their way in their farming, their way in their relationships, their way in every possible sense. So what do you think is going to happen to them? Well, an old covenant curse comes to bear. Leviticus 26 32 to 34, the Lord had said, if they disobey, I myself will devastate the land. I will scatter you among the nations. I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. Why did God do this? Because they spurned His rules and abhorred His statutes. It's a striking reminder, isn't it, that your sin will find you out? You might think the Lord isn't taking notice of these small slights of His Word, like that whole Sabbath principle, but God isn't missing anything. And if you carry on in sin, desolation will meet you. Indeed, the 70 years of desolation of the land seems to be a just reprisal for the neglect of the Sabbath from the whole time there was a monarchy. You do the math, 70 times 7 is 490 years, and that dates all the way back to about the time when King Saul first started to reign. They never obeyed God. And His justice falls. What a frightening reality. If you violated His justice, the Lord will repay you. How should such a word meet us tonight? Well, who among us has violated God's justice? All of us. Do you remember what Paul quotes in Galatians 3 of Deuteronomy 27? Everyone who doesn't continue to do everything written in the book of the law is under a curse. What does that mean? We're all cursed. What hope do we have? Well, there's only one hope. We need one to come to redeem us from the curse of the law. And that one is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because without Him, we will meet only curse but with Him, there's an escape from judgment. If you don't have Jesus, you only get a fearful expectation of judgment. But if you have Jesus, you get safety. Why is that the case? Because God will keep His Word. 
He is always faithful to His Word. And let it show us, brethren, not to trifle with God, not to act as though we'll never be held accountable for our crimes against Him. Well, finally, see with me some good news at the end. You've been waiting for this a long time. Cyrus stirred. Seventy years of desolation is a long time. But we really should ask this question. Why isn't it longer? Indeed, why does God limit His judgment at all? With the record of sin that these people have, shouldn't they never hear words of hope again? And yet, even before the disaster struck, the Lord made it clear His silence would not last forever. That His covenant mercies wouldn't stop. Sin won't prevail. Already, when Moses spoke to the people, before they went through the 40 years of the wilderness, which is Leviticus 26, and then after that, right before they're going to go in the Promised Land, Deuteronomy 28, he's telling them, there's a way back from captivity if you turn to God. And then Isaiah was prophesying 150 years before all this destruction starts coming. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and say to her that her warfare is ended. Isaiah even talks about Cyrus by name some 200 years before he's raised up. Well, brethren, what happens in the history? After 70 years of exile in Babylon, God raises up a new power, Persia. And the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord through Jeremiah might be fulfilled. What word's that? Jeremiah 29. Tell me if you've heard this before. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Those famous words are not for graduates and college students. Though God does have a plan for them. The plan is God is determined to be gracious to His people, to not allow sin and all of this mess to thwart His overwhelming purpose. He's determined to set His affections on His own and He will move heaven and earth. He will take the most powerful ruler in the world and make him do the bidding that he would have done for His covenant mercies. He will make Cyrus be stirred up in his soul so that he sends the exiles back to Jerusalem. And get this, He even pays for them to rebuild the temple. Silas releases the exiles. Silas arranges for a safe return to the city and he gives them everything they need to see the temple constructed and it's put in writing, verse 22, which becomes really important when all the trouble starts down in those days. Brethren, what are we seeing here? Well, we're seeing, for one, that God holds the heart of the king in His hand and He directs it wherever He will. He is sovereign. And even when it seems like the world is coming unglued, His plan prevails. But here's the real kicker to see. Our God, who has total sovereignty, is a God who is good and has determined to do good to His people. He gives us a future and a hope. And that means, beloved, that our God will cause His church, which may at times be cast down, never to be cast off. 
It means when sin rises in our ranks, even the folly of sin won't mess up the purposes of God. It means that God does determine to be gracious. Now that does not give us a license to sin. Many unrepentant people died when Babylon assaulted the city. But the Lord will extend His mercy to those who seek Him and He will restore. And ultimately, this Exodus-like rescue a setting free from captivity in Babylon and making a way to return to the land. It's a picture of a greater exodus that Jesus says He has to accomplish in Jerusalem. Luke 9, Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus on the Man of Transfiguration. What are they talking about? His exodus, His departure, which He will accomplish in Jerusalem, whereby He will save His people from their sins. And why is God doing this? Because you're amazing, wonderful people. Because you're so great that God just has to be nice to you. No, it's because God is determined to keep His Word. Praise God that in the midst of all of our unfaithfulness, He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. May that enduring message from Chronicles that God is faithful stick in your heart tonight. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a promise-keeping God. We thank You, O Lord, that that is true both with respect to Your judgment but with respect to Your covenant mercies. And Lord, we come as needy sinners who cry out to You to have mercy on us. Lord, we know that we are like Judah of old, prone to wonder. But Lord, we pray that You would shackle our hearts to You and Your love. We pray that You would keep us. We pray that we would learn the lessons of the past because these things are written down for our instruction. And may they encourage us not to go our own way, but to follow Your way. Hear us, O Father in Heaven, as we cry out these things. And bless us as we seek the only Redeemer for sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.